Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about evidence-based supplements for athletes. We're probably going to do this as a two-part kind of episode or two episodes because we're going to try and cover a lot so we don't want to make it too long and we're also only really going to focus on evidence-based supplements. We're only going to focus on supplements that are going to really help performance or have the potential to help performance. We're not really going to talk about anything that probably doesn't really help or anything like that. I really want to stay positive with this and just focus on the things that we can do to help improve performances. Um, Did you want to kick things off, Leah? What are we starting with? Let's start with creatine. So based on our episode on creatine, I think that it's pretty obvious that we're both massive fans of utilizing this supplement. I think it's one of the supplements that really can move the needle for performance and for muscle building um, and a lot of other different things. So creatine itself can be utilized across a range of different sports. Um, So obviously we're lifters, so that is what we would take it for. And it's very beneficial when we're thinking of any kind of strength sports. Um, But it can be useful in any sport that has kind of those short bursts of high intensity exercise. So it could be combat athletes, it could be sprinters, um, but it could even have secondary benefits for people doing endurance sports. So it can definitely have a range of different applications. Um, When it comes to creatine and what it actually does, uh, it basically allows for you to have more um, creatine phosphate in your system. So what that then allows is for a production of ATP in the muscle um, that is better than if you're not taking creatine as a supplement. And then ATP is then used for energy production. So it is useful in that way. And the biggest thing about creatine is you want to take it consistently. So you want to do your three to five grams every single day and let it build up in the muscle. So it's not about the acute effect that it has on performance, but more or less how you take it over time. So once again, consistency is the most important there. Uh, You can do fast loading and slow loading protocols when you do first start taking creatine. So Slow loading would just be going straight to that maintenance dose of three to five grams per day, any time of the day. Um, And then fast loading would be taking 20 to 25 grams a day for five to seven days so that it builds up in the muscle at a faster rate. So you're able to have that performance benefit. Um, Pros and cons to both. Cons of the the fast loading is that it is a little bit hard to do because you do, do have to break up that 20 to 25 gram dose over four doses over the day in order to invo- avoid gastrointestinal distress. Um, but you do get the benefit quicker in, you, in terms of you get it in five to seven days. Um, but you can do the fast, uh, the slow loading and you'd still get the same benefit over kind of your four to five weeks. Awesome. Pretty good summary. It's hard to summarize creatine in it just really two minutes. It really is because <laughs> it does so much. Like we did a whole episode on it. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of like it in a nutshell. And that's how I would usually describe it to clients. Yeah, for sure. So then the next one I'm going to talk about is protein powder. Um, the way I view protein powder is it's not magical. It's really a convenient way to get what is often a high quality source of protein. So there's a few ways I'd view it in terms of If you're struggling to reach your protein needs or on any individual day you're lacking in protein or anything like that, or you want to time your protein. So we know timing of protein is not super, super important, but still does matter a little bit. So say you wanted something around the time of your workout, either pre-workout or post-workout, protein powder could be a great option for that. Um, Whey protein is the gold standard, but there's a lot of other protein powders that are still pretty good, like 
I suppose you could talk more about the vegan ones, but like I'm a big believer in either soy protein or something that is like a combination of multiple sources like rice protein or pea protein. Anything else you think about from a like vegan protein powder? They're my two go-tos when I usually work with plant-based people is either your soy protein isolate or your pea and rice protein blends. I do happen to prefer soy protein isolate just a little bit more because the research for it in terms of muscle building is yeah. a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So yeah, so like protein powder, just something that's a convenient way of getting your protein in. It's nothing magical. Like there is a lot of people who are really big on like, if you have a workout, but you don't have your protein shake directly after you, you're not going to make any gains. Like it's nothing magical like that. You don't need that, but it is a convenient source that can be useful for a lot of people. And next one would be caffeine. So obviously caffeine is something that a lot of different people use in a lot of different sports and outside of sport and use it for relatively similar reasons. Um, in terms of who can use caffeine, I'd say any athlete. Would you, There's no athlete you'd say caffeine's not going to be potentially useful for you. Not really any sports, I like, yeah. yeah nothing not, specifically. Yeah. Like it would cover such a broad range of sports and a broad range of people. The only time I would say that it would be ineffective to use caffeine is if it is, if it's, you're someone where it interrupts your sleep and then you're not getting adequate recovery through lack of sleep, then caffeine's probably not for you. And that might be dependent on the times of the day that you end up training. Like if you're training at nighttime, you may not want to overload on the caffeine prior to bed. Uh, but in terms of what it, what caffeine actually does, it affects the central nervous system. So when we're talking about sport, it basically allows the perception of like pain and effort to be reduced. So I'm sure everyone's had that experience where they've had a bunch of caffeine, gone to the gym, and you just feel better. You just get a better workout in. Um, I don't think there's really any denying that that happens at a certain point. Uh, but a secondary thing with caffeine is that if you take enough of it, it can somewhat actually make you stronger or more powerful for a short period of time. So it can improve muscle contractions, um, leading to more enhanced motor recruitment. So if you take enough caffeine and go do a good training session, you may able you may be able to lift more than if you had no caffeine at all. Um, so in terms of how much you actually want to take, we'd say three to six milligrams per kilo body weight um, is, is the range. The lower end of that, you're going to get more of the, like the mental acuity, the uh, reduced perception of effort. And then on the higher end of that, that's when you see those more performance-based uh, benefits from caffeine. Yeah. And like, that's actually a pretty high one when you do that, when you actually do the maths on it, like it's a lot of caffeine. Yeah. Like for context, like let's use a 100 kilo powerlifter as an example. If we went to the top range of that, we're looking at 600 milligrams. Yeah. 500 mil monster <laughs> has 160 milligrams. So it's like, th there's a lot of people who will be like, oh, can I just have a coffee before I train? Will that solve it? And how much caffeine is in a cup of coffee? It can really depend on the coffee that you're using. So um, there, there was a study done on the Gold Coast by Ben Desbrow that found that like caffeine and espresso can range from like 25 to 200 milligrams in one shot of espresso. So that's a huge range. So if you're relying on coffee and you don't know much how much caffeine is actually in that, that can be a really hard thing to dose. Yeah, like I typically call it like 80 to 100, but because that study from Ben, like... It's really kind of shook me because it's kind of like, and this was ages ago I read that study, but it shook yeah. me because it's like, well, if you're aiming for 600 milligrams and you're significantly off in your dosing, that could mess you up. You could go like, you could be like 
eight milligrams per kilo or something like that. So it gets kind of scary, but it's something to think about. Like when we're doing really high doses of caffeine, I actually like supplemental forms like Nodos or 100%. energy drinks or pre-workout just because we know what we're getting. If you're just doing it for the kind of hype you up benefit, reduce um, perceived effort, all those things, coffee is probably going to work. But if you're trying to really push the needle in terms of optimizing performance, probably makes sense to be a little bit more clinical about it and like yeah. know what you're having yeah yeah and it, it is a very individual thing as well so whilst we have that range you might find that you get a good performance benefit at a slightly yeah. lower dose um, and maybe you don't have to go all the way to that six milligrams per yeah. kilo which is a lot I know our colleague Tyler he like plays <laughs> a lot with this and he goes right up to that dosage um, and he's a big guy so he'd be taking on a lot of caffeine yeah. um, and I think something like that a, it would like send my anxiety crazy and B, I think it would just, it'd be too much. Yeah. And like I, I fight around with it because I'm like, well, that's what the research shows. Yeah. Like, I'm obviously going to try it. And like, I, I don't think it was more beneficial for me than lower dosages. Like I just think the negatives start to outweigh the positives at that stage. Um, totally. But super, super individual. Um, next one we're going to talk about is citrulline malate. I'm not massive on this one. Like it's, it's not anywhere near as... Um, positive as all the other ones but it can still help so the main way it helps is through vasodilation it allows blood to flow more easily that's what the citrulline aspect does um basically citrulline converts arginine um that then promotes nitric oxide and that like translates that so improved blood flow like (laughs) It's a bad example, but like it's almost like a poor man's blood doping. Like I was thinking of like Lance Armstrong and stuff like that. Like it's kind of like it's like that on a on a low low scale. So like when we're looking at endurance athletes, it's it's useful for that, obviously. For lifters, there's a small boost in high rep sets. Like if you're doing a set of 20 or anything, any exercise that you get a pump, the feeling of a pump, it's probably going to help you on that exercise. So Small benefit, but, like, it's not as consistent as you'd think. Like, a lot of the early studies that were really positive on it weren't really, like, relevant for how we normally lift. Like, most people will do a set of 10 or something like that, then wait two or three minutes, then do another set or whatever. Whereas a lot of the early studies were doing, like, one-minute rest periods and stuff like that, which, like, for muscle growth does not seem to be optimal. But even in those studies, there's one study that came out over the last two years on German volume training, but, like, 10 by 10, so super high volume, they only use one minute rest periods. That's where you'd expect citrulline malate to shine and it didn't have a good result. So it's like, I don't know, it's pretty mixed, but the mechanism makes sense. There is positive research, like the research is slightly leaning in favor of it being positive. Um, the malate side of things helps with, it helps with creatine as well, like really creatine phosphate, like it helps with ATP regeneration, I should say. Um, so it helps from that perspective. And the other thing that's kind of relevant beyond improved performance, which we're not even, for reference, we're not even sure actually is translating to improved muscle growth, like better pumps and ability to do higher rep sets to a better capacity doesn't actually necessarily translate to better muscle growth. Um, One thing we do know, though, is in a lot of the research, it seems to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness. People seem to get less sore. And it's like right up there with some of the best strategies we've got for reducing that. Like it's not going to, like if you haven't trained for ages and you go in and do a really high volume workout, like you're going to get sore no matter what, but it seems to help. And that's a combination of something to do with clearance of ammonia. And there was also a complex mechanism related to the nitric oxide and blood flow and stuff like that. I was going to try and repeat it, but like <laughs> I was getting confused reading it. And like, I do understand the mechanism, but I'm like, there's no way I can say this like <laughs> simply. Um, 
if anyone's interested in taking that, it's only an acute benefit. It's not something that builds up in your system over time like creatine. So it's like six to eight grams of it, um, of citrulline malate, so not just citrulline, six to eight grams of it. And that's 30 to 120 minutes before training. Is it something that you take personally? I do. I'm not sure how comfortable I feel publicly saying this, but like, yeah. so one of the reasons why I take it is because of my knee injury and sure. other tendon issues. So I have a lot of tendon issues and we know that if my theory on collagen or not just my theory, but like if my, the way my, I understand how collagen works is accurate and we are going to talk about collagen later, but like that mechanism requires blood flow. We know that tendons get significantly less blood flow than muscles and we also know that if you've got like some mild, like what you'd call tendonitis, like a little bit of a flare up and you get a sick pump, it doesn't hurt as much. <laughs> so yeah, like sure. that's, that's why I personally take it for a combination of that. Like if it, I don't care if it improves my performance at all, but if it helps me get a better pump, which then allows me to train better and recover better and all those kind of things, then that's kind of my thoughts. I'm not massive on it. I've never actually recommended that to a client, but it's something that I think about for myself. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right, so next one I'm not super sold on, and that is sodium bicarbonate or like sodium bicarb, bicarb yeah. soda, whatever you want to call it. Um, we'll get into why I'm not super sold on it, but we'll go over what it's useful for first. So it could be a useful supplement when we're talking about high intensity kind of endurance activities. So things like CrossFit, anything where you're trying to maintain a high level of intensity for a longer period of time and fatigue can set in that's where this supplement could be useful. Um, it could potentially be useful in lifters, particularly if you're doing kind of what higher rep sets, but also relatively intense. Yeah, I'd say anything where you feel like, what, like uh, I hate this terminology because I know it's not 100% accurate, but anywhere you feel that kind of lactic acid buildup, anything yeah. that's like higher rep, really intense, that kind of feeling you get associated with that, it should help with that. Yeah. Uh, so it buffers the basically buffers the pH. So as you exercise, you do get an increase in acidity in the body and in the muscles. Um, that just happens when you exercise because of the many physiological processes that are happening in the muscles. And bicarb can basically counteract this um, and, and buffer that. So the theory is that by doing that, by not allowing that buildup of acidity to occur, uh, it's going to help with uh, prolonging that feeling of like the burning muscles and fatigue. So yeah, basically it just helps with fatigue um, and that burning sensation. So you're able to perform at higher intensities for a longer period of time. Um, and there is research to show this, like this, obviously we're talking about evidence-based supplements. We know that it does work to some extent. Yeah, It's a little murky. Like I said, looking into it, I'm not completely sold on its applications, especially when you bring in like the cons of taking this supplement and how it's actually taken. Um, so the best way to do it is to literally take bicarb soda. So like from, you know, that shelf in your cupboard where you have all your baking ingredients and, and literally taking it like that in some water. Um, and the issue gets even worse when we think about how much you actually need to take in order to get a performance benefit. Um, so we're talking like 200 to 400 milligrams per kilo body weight. Um, ideally, that would be with a small carb rich meal about two to three hours before exercise to get the the best benefit out of it but you're thinking like that's a lot of bicarbs yeah so like going back to like the 100 kilo athlete example yeah. we're looking at 20 to 40 grams grams of bicarb yeah soda. it's a lot like 40 grams is yeah. yeah like that's the same as like if you get a large 
protein scoop, like a large protein, a normal protein scoop is 30 grams. So we're like looking at a similar amount. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. So imagine mixing that in water and and drinking it a few hours before you're actually going to like compete or train. Um, So there is a potential like risk of gastrointestinal distress. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. I I think if anyone was going going to think, oh, I'm going to have all this bicarb soda, they'd kind of expect an upset stomach at that point. Like if you didn't know it was a performance enhancer (laughs) and you just thought about taking it, you'd probably assume it's probably going to make me feel sick. (laughs) Probably. Um, And you can split it up throughout like say the 24 hours prior to your event or training in smaller doses, which might be more manageable, but taking something, you know, pretty much on the hour, every hour for, you know, a certain period of time is pretty time consuming. Like the amount of effort you would then give that for the benefit that you would get. I don't know. I, I don't know if it really weighs out yeah. in its favour. And like as we've spoken about, I've been meaning to try for ages. I still haven't actually tried it, but partly because it's just unappealing. It's so but unappealing. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I want to try it out, see what it feels like so I can actually talk about it like more than just being like, it seems unappealing, but like, yeah, yeah for sure. And it is available in capsules. Like that is something that I did find, but the again, the number of capsules you'd have to take of bicarb is a crazy amount. So I just feel like, logically like it's just impractical although it may provide some benefit for some people yeah and the way i view it is it makes sense like for example if you're a crossfit athlete and you're going to the crossfit games and you you only compete occasionally or whatever and you've tried it out in training you know it feels good for you you're fine with it well 100 of course you take it there like yeah. you, you do anything at that stage um but like when we're talking about like it could help lifting maybe <laughs> like i'm probably not <laughs> don't know if i'm that. super sold yeah. in that context yeah So as I touched on earlier, we're going to talk about collagen now. So who for? Basically just anybody who has any musculoskeletal injury pretty much, which makes up about 70% of injuries. So we're talking like tendon and ligament injuries basically. Um, Like tendinopathy is the main one I think about for, but like even stuff like if somebody's torn their ACL and they've got like a six to 12 month rehab ahead of them, like maybe this will speed up the process. Um, Basically the mechanism is... You have a decent amount of collagen. So like we're talking like 15 to 25 grams, which is more than most supplements. So 15 to 25 grams of collagen that mostly breaks down to the amino acids. About 10% remains intact as collagen peptides. And as you take it pre-workout and so like 40 to 60 minutes before the session. And as you do that session, you get blood flow to that area. So we know tendons, for example, as I said, get less blood flow than muscles, but they get some blood flow. And that's the research has shown that that does lead to a, an increase in collagen synthesis in the injured area. We don't have what I'd love to see in terms of like, okay, ACL rehabs normally take nine to 12 months. Now they're taking six to 12 because it's like, we don't have like large sample size studies of that. We've got case studies of that. We've got individual cases, but it's not a lot to go on, but that's the way I'd go with it. The other thing to think about is obviously you also, or not obviously, but you do also want to take it with vitamin C as well, or at least have some vitamin C, rich food alongside that just because that's involved in one of the enzymatic steps involved in collagen synthesis in the body. So you kind of need it from that perspective. Um, Once again, not hundred percent sold on that. Very open to changing my opinion on it, but it is something that's like, if we are on something here, it can be a bit of a game changer. Like there's certain, certain injuries where like a lot of people often have MRIs long after becoming pain-free and the, the pathology of the injury is still there. And in a lot of these case studies, the pathology of the injury is disappearing. It's going back to healthy tissue and stuff like that. So like 
unless those are just freak outliers that have been put out in the case studies, we could be onto something there. And like the worst case scenario, you're just having a decent amount of a low quality protein. Best case scenario, it's helping. So like there's not much to lose outside of the money and the inconvenience of taking another supplement. Yeah, it's an easy thing to take. So why not? And I feel like a lot of people when they're rehabbing an injury are kind of grasping at straws and you pretty much do anything that will slightly help. So it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Last one for part one of these two episodes is going to be omega-3. So omega-3 has a lot of different applications, kind of like most of these supplements, uh, but it's another one that I think is relevant to most athletes and exercises and can likely help uh, regardless of what kind of exercise you are doing. Um, So we do know that it reduces inflammatory processes, like that's pretty clear at this point. Um, And we can see a reduction in oxidative stress, so potentially less DOMS, so delayed onset muscle soreness. Things that are slightly less clear in the research, but might also be a part of this, um, is a potential contribution to increased muscle mass gains and strength. Uh, improved endurance capacity by reducing the oxygen cost of exercise and it potentially can help preserve muscle mass when um, calories are restricted or more so during like immobilization so when you're potentially injured not training um, that might be a good time to take yeah so like my my thoughts on that because like I there's two studies on that right now and they're insanely positive like they're too good to be true like there's one of the there was a case study that was done on I think it was with the Brumbies where they like ACL tear immobilized and they gained quad size like while the muscle was immobilized usually people lose about twenty percent of their quad size in seven days when they're immobilized so and, too good to be and true it's like, yeah and it wasn't just it wasn't just fish oil they did fish oil plus creatine plus that electrostimulation of the muscles to like get it functioning right. and a few other things but like the the other two actual studies on it have been pretty clear that like it seemed to help. But like the researchers who do that study or those studies, I've heard them talk and they're not that high on it. Their words are, they're like, unless you have really low fish intake or low omega-3 intake in your diet, we're not even out here saying you should take fish all year round. Like we're more saying that based on this research, if you tear an ACL and you know you're going in for surgery in a couple of weeks, start taking fish oil in advance just in case it helps. And like I can agree with that logic. My, my thoughts are if somebody's got low fish intake or just low omega-3s for their diet, then I'm far more likely to look at it. Even um, just from a health perspective, it yeah, can be beneficial. Yeah, because there's a lot of factors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in regards to how much you should be taking um, to, to get these kinds of benefits is around one to four grams of fish oil per day. Um, That is if you obviously eat fish. Otherwise, if you're plant-based, you can use some kind of microalgae supplement that is very similar. Uh, So from that regard, you do want to... I guess stay away from like your your cheer and flax oil supplements and really go for one that is going to be high in EPA and DHA, very similar to fish oil, rather than another form of omega-3 that's less effective called ALA. Um, And when you are looking for a vegan microalgae supplement, you just want to also make sure that it has about 200 milligrams of EPA and DHA combined um, because there are a lot that are fairly below that level so you have to be mindful about which one you you are choosing cool uh well we'll wrap up there so we're gonna aim to release both of these episodes in the same week so we'll wrap up there move on to the next one and speak then Mm -hmm.